The time is now. Volume 4, Episode 56. This is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, Vice Chair of Labor and Employment here at Cozen O'Connor. So this has certainly been an interesting couple of weeks uh, as I sit here doing this weekend edition, this special weekend edition of Employment Law Now on March 15th, 2020. It's been an interesting couple of weeks. You know, nobody's perfect, but I feel like for the most part, businesses and employers are doing the best they can with the information they have and trying hard to have a measured and rational approach one that's not based solely on emotion when we're dealing with what's going on in the world in the country and in our local spaces uh, with the coronavirus still there's there's no question that there are a lot of appropriate emotions out there with all of this this is fairly unprecedented so it's hard to say that anyone's feelings or sensitivities are wrong the challenge i think is doing the right thing and coming up with quick answers to a situation that seems to be changing by the hour again none of us is perfect hopefully we're all doing the best we can uh, I find that with most issues, when it comes to now talking about the workplace and the employer-employee relationship, I find that with most issues, particularly in emergency and uncertain periods of time, it's always best at the end of the day as a default rule to just be transparent with employees, keep open the lines of communication as much as possible, even just to tell them that we're not sure about X or Y, or we're thinking about X or Y, and more details, more information will follow. It's very easy for a company's executive team and human resources to make assumptions of how people are feeling or what people might know about. It's also very likely and very frequent that the executive team and human resources may even have advanced knowledge of uh, the company's mindset and certain plans, forgetting for the moment that a lot of the other parts of the organization just might be grappling with so much uncertainty. And in this kind of situation, there are all kinds of issues on the personal life front and what's going on at home and with kids and childcare that all of this uncertainty at work and not knowing what the company is thinking about doing and when is just adding to the emotion of the situation. I certainly hope all of you, your families and coworkers stay safe, healthy and happy uh, as this whole situation hopefully um, becomes something that ends more in the short term than in the longer term. But for now and for purposes of this podcast, I have a very important two-part series this week relating to cor uh, coronavirus developments. 
Today, on this very special weekend edition of Employment Law Now, I want to talk about some very breaking news on legislation and government agency action that's just been taking place. Then in part two of this mini-series later on this week, I'm going to rebroadcast in its entirety the Coronavirus in the Workplace webinar that my firm just presented this past Friday on March 13th, 2020. There is a link on our firm's website, cozen.com. If you are in a place and of the mindset to watch the uh, webinar that we just presented, not only getting the audio, but also being able to see the slides, the PowerPoint presentation that went along with it. But for those of you who missed the webinar or uh, might not be either able to or interested in sitting and watching on your computer, I will be rebroadcasting at least the audio portion of that webinar later this week as part two uh, of my podcast, Coronavirus Mini-Series. But for now, let's start with part one of this discussion and really some very breaking news. Early in the morning hours, just uh, this past Saturday, March 14th, the United States House of Representatives passed the Families First Coronavirus Response Act which is also known as Bill H.R. 6201. This is the second coronavirus bill to make its way through Congress in the past couple of weeks. There was a spending bill that was signed into law on March 6th. Uh, this bill that just passed the House uh, Saturday morning passed with very broad bipartisan support uh, and also with an indication uh, over the weekend that President Trump, in fact, does support it and will likely sign it. Again, just to be very clear, this is legislation that passed the House of Representatives. It still needs to pass the Senate. The Senate is not around over the weekend, but will be coming back Monday morning to Washington, D.C. Uh, to vote on it. The legislation still needs to pass the Senate before then President Trump can sign it into law. Um, so it's not yet a final piece of legislation, but I think it's important enough and is probably in its most final enough version that will likely get passed and signed in the next couple of days that it was worth coming on and giving all of you a heads up as to the key provisions. We do expect the Senate to take up this legislation probably Monday morning, tomorrow, March 16th. Uh, we expect it to pass the Senate as well uh, and to then be signed into law by President Trump. There are many provisions that are not employment law or workplace related in this Families First Coronavirus Response Act, but for purposes of focusing this podcast at least, I wanted to focus on the employment law related provisions, and there are four primary ones that I want to bring to your attention. It's also important to note that the effective date of this legislation will be 15 days after the law is actually signed by Trump. So whenever President Trump does sign it, it will become effective 15 days or no later than 15 days, I should say, after the law is actually signed. It also will automatically expire. Uh, some people refer to it as a sunset provision, but it'll automatically expire on December 31st, 2020 this year. So clearly at the moment and subject to any subsequent legislation, this is really temporary legislation designed to address what is going on now in the immediate impact that it's having on so many workplaces and so many people. 
So I want to talk about four primary employment or HR-related provisions in this new legislation that was at least passed by the House of Representatives early Saturday morning. The first is the Emergency Family and Medical Leave Expansion Act. Just like it sounds, it is an emergency and temporary addition to the federal FMLA. And all I'm going to be talking about during this episode uh, are changes and developments as they relate to federal law. Keep in mind, as I tell you all the time, that the state and local governments very often have their own versions of an FMLA, uh, as well as ADA and other employment laws, so you certainly should keep your eyes and ears tuned to what your local jurisdictions are doing in these areas, but again, I wanted to just bring to you what the federal government uh, has done over the weekend. So. For purposes of the Emergency uh, Family and Medical Leave Expansion Act, let's go through a couple of things that was done. First, again, this applies through December 31st, 2020. It will apply to employers with fewer than 500 employees. Now, we have no idea why this uh, amendment seems to exempt out larger companies that have more than 500 employees, but for the moment, uh, this amendment only applies to those companies with fewer than 500 employees. When it comes to employees who are eligible for these additional benefits, it is going to apply to employees who have been on the job for at least 30 days on the job for at least 30 days. Now, those of you who know the FMLA, you know that an employee to be eligible for the FMLA uh, generally has to be working at the company for 12 months and then had to have worked for 1,250 hours in the prior 12 months. But for purposes of these coronavirus amendments, it will uh, apply and cover employees who are on the job for at least 30 days. I want to stop here again to remind everybody that when we're talking about these new uh, FMLA amendments, it doesn't change what the rest of the FMLA or the other provisions of the FMLA provide. So when we're talking about coverage of a certain size employer or particular kinds of employees who have different eligibility requirements, what I'm telling you now only applies to the new portions of the FMLA, the coronavirus amendments to the FMLA. All other provisions, rules, practices, etc., for the rest of the FMLA that's not related to the coronavirus amendments continue to be in effect and apply. So again, employers with fewer than 500 employees, employees who have been on the job for at least 30 days, now under these amendments have the right to take up to 12 weeks of job-protected leave under the FMLA for three additional primary reasons. One, to adhere to a requirement or a recommendation that there be a quarantine because of exposure to or having symptoms of the coronavirus. Two, to care for an at-risk family member adhering to a quarantine requirement or some recommendation due to being exposed to or having symptoms of the coronavirus. Or three, to care for a child of an employee if the child's school or place of care has been closed or if the child care provider is unavailable due to the coronavirus. Now, the Department of Labor uh, has the authority 
under this new law to issue regulations to exempt small businesses with fewer than 50 employees in certain hardship cases when uh, these new provisions, these new entitlements will pose uh, a certain real significant hardship to the particular company. Uh, the Department of Labor has not issued any regulations. Again, obviously, this has just been passed by the House of Representatives uh, Saturday morning. Uh, hasn't even been signed into law yet, but I just wanted to throw that out there for those of you wondering whether there will be some small business uh, exemption in all of this now that the law as it currently stands uh, will apply to those companies with fewer than 500 employees. The new law also broadens certain definitions. For example, the definition of parent uh, is expanded, again, only for purposes of the coronavirus amendment. So parent will now include a biological foster or adoptive parent, a step-parent, a parent-in-law, parent of a domestic partner, or a legal guardian or some other person who stood in loco parentis when the employee was a child. The law also broadens the definition of family member to include someone who is a pregnant woman, a senior citizen, an individual with a disability, or has access or functional needs, and who is a son or daughter of the employee, as well as a next of kin of the employee for whom the employee is a next of kin, or a grandparent or grandchild of the employee. So let's talk about paid versus unpaid leave under this new amendment. So under the new legislation, the first 14 days for which an employee takes leave for these new coronavirus reasons, the leave can still be unpaid. An employee, however, may elect to substitute any accrued but unused vacation leave, personal leave, or medical or sick leave for those first 14 days, but a company cannot require an employee to do so. However, after the initial 14 days, employers must provide paid leave for up to 14 days. So let me make that clear. Again, for the first 14 days for which an employee takes leave, the leave may be unpaid. After an initial two weeks of unpaid leave, employers must provide paid leave for up to 14 days. Again, the reason for taking the leave has to be one of these coronavirus reasons. Employee pay under this provision cannot be less than, it has to be at least two-thirds of the employee's regular pay rate and based on the number of hours that the employee would otherwise be normally scheduled to work. For those employees, and look, there are going to be all kinds of scenarios and, and questions that people have, unique circumstances that will have to play themselves out uh, over the coming days and coming weeks, um, but some examples are at least accounted for in this new legislation. For example, for those employees whose schedules vary from week to week to the extent that the company is not able to determine with any real certainty the number of hours that the employee would have worked, the employer is required to use the average number of hours the employee was scheduled per day over the six-month period prior to when the employee began taking leave. And if the employee did not work over that six-month period, the employer is required to use what would be the reasonable expectation of the employee at the time of hiring. 
So, as you also know, under the FMLA, there is a job restoration requirement. So, remember, normally, for FMLA leave taken for any reason, it is going to be job protected, and the employee must be returned to the same or an equivalent position after the FMLA leave ends. However, there is a new kind of wrinkle with these coronavirus amendments. So, with regard to employers who employ fewer than 25 employees, and here is a section of the legislation where we're dealing with smaller businesses, for those employers who employ fewer than 25 employees, the restoration, the job restoration of an employee's position after taking coronavirus-related leave under the FMLA does not apply. There does not have to be job restoration in three circumstances. One, the position held by the employee no longer exists due to economic conditions or other changes in the operating conditions of the employer that affect employment and are caused by a public health emergency during the period of leave. And the employer has made reasonable efforts to restore the employee to a position equivalent to the position the employee held when the leave began with equivalent benefits, pay, and employment terms and conditions. And after reasonable efforts of the employer fail, number three, the employer nevertheless makes reasonable efforts during a prescribed period to contact the employee if an equivalent position becomes available. If those circumstances are met, then employers who employ fewer than 25 employees do not have to provide job restoration at the end of an FMLA leave taken for coronavirus reasons. So that is the first of four uh, buckets under this new legislation, the emergency FMLA expansion. The second uh, that really relates to HR and employment law is the portion of this new legislation referred to as the Emergency Unemployment Insurance Stabilization and Access Act. A lot to digest there. Um, but generally, this new portion of the legislation provides a uh, billion dollars in the year 2020 for emergency grants to states for engaging in activities related to the processing and paying of unemployment insurance benefits under certain conditions. Just to give you a little bit of an example without going too much into the weeds, $500 million of that would be used to provide immediate additional funding to all states for staffing, technology, systems, and other administrative costs. Another $500 million would be then reserved for emergency grants to states, um, with, uh, which experience at least a 10% increase in unemployment in those states. And for those states that do experience an increase of 10% or more in their unemployment rate, this new legislation provides 100% federal funding for extended benefits, um, which in the normal case would uh, typically require just 50% of funding, uh, with the rest coming from the states themselves. Bucket number three that was just passed on Saturday morning. Emergency paid sick leave. This is different than the FMLA expansion. This is now an emergency paid sick leave provision of the new legislation. Again, this um, is in effect through December 31st, 2020, again, just this year. But the new legislation, again, applies only to employers with fewer than 500 employees. And for those employers, they are required to provide employees two weeks of paid sick leave 
paid at the employee's regular rate in order to um, deal with five primary situations. One, when an employee self-isolates because of a coronavirus diagnosis. Two, in order for the employee to obtain a medical diagnosis or care because the employee has coronavirus symptoms. Three, because the employee is complying with a recommendation or order by a public official who has jurisdiction over the situation or a health care provider on the basis that the physical presence of the employee on his or her job would jeopardize the health of others in the workplace. Four, for the employee to care for or assist a family member of the employee who is suffering, who is quarantining, or is otherwise seeking a diagnosis related to the coronavirus. Or five, for the employee to care for that employee's child if the school or place of care has been closed or if the child care provider is unavailable due to the coronavirus. So, in terms of the paid sick time itself, Employees are entitled to paid sick time of up to 80 hours for full-time employees. And when it comes to part-time employees, they're entitled to paid sick time for the number of hours that the employee works on average over a two-week period. Paid sick time under this new law is not going to carry over from one year to the next, again at the moment. This new law only applies through December 31st, 2020 for this year. For those employers who have existing paid sick leave policies, and I think most of you do, particularly in states like New York where you're required to, uh, the paid sick time in this new legislation is going to be made available to employees in addition to whatever existing paid leave you already have. An employer may not change their existing paid leave policies on or after the date that this new legislation uh, is enacted and becomes in effect. There are a couple of other uh, provisions in this new legislation dealing with um, emergency paid sick leave. First, Employers may not require that uh, the employee involved with this emergency sick leave search for or find a replacement employee to cover the hours during which the employee is going to be using paid sick time. The paid sick time, secondly, is going to be available for immediate use by the employee regardless of how long the employee has been employed by the company. An employee may first use the paid sick time under the act, and you, companies may not require that the employee use other paid leave before the employee uses the paid sick time under this legislation. And this last part, I would think, goes without saying, but I might as well say it. Employers may not discharge, discipline, or in any other manner discriminate against any employee who takes leave that they're entitled to take under this new legislation or anyone who has filed a complaint or testified or participated in any proceeding um, under uh, or out of this new legislation. There's all kinds of um, enforcement provisions in here and remedies that uh, employees who are aggrieved can then get from the employer if they do file a claim for violations. And then the last, the fourth bucket uh, for this new legislation that just passed the House of Representatives on Saturday morning, it deals with tax credits for companies for paid sick and paid family and medical leave.
uh, is a little bit more in the weeds, I think, than what we've been talking about so far, but I wanted to just give you a little bit of summary, and, and like with the other buckets, just to put this on your radar and know that it's out there. This new legislation that passed provides a refundable tax credit for companies equal to 100% of qualified paid sick leave wages that are paid by an employer for each calendar quarter. There are a couple of uh, limitations to this credit, uh, and I'm happy to send you this part of the legislation if you want to get into the weeds uh, about that, um, but we will certainly follow up with additional information uh, on the uh, limitations as well as additional payroll credit and family leave payroll credit um, provisions that are part of this new legislation. So. Those are the four primary employment law and HR buckets uh, in the law that just passed the House of Representatives on Saturday morning. Um, again, and I keep saying this so that people who are jumping in at different portions perhaps and listening to different portions of this episode uh, who may not have heard it the first time, this still needs to pass the Senate and still needs to get signed by President Trump, which uh, I do expect will happen this week. If there are any changes from this version, I will let you know uh, and I will be able to bring it to you, uh, hopefully, uh, and on part two of this podcast series later this week. Before I go, though, I want to also quickly highlight some additional government action and resources that have just come down related to all things coronavirus. First, the United States Department of Labor just issued two question and answer guidance documents on the coronavirus impacts under the FLSA, the Fair Labor Standards Act, on the federal front, and the FMLA, the Family and Medical Leave Act, on the federal front. Very interesting. Uh, Frequently asked questions uh, are answered in these two guidance documents about certain pay obligation scenarios that could arise in your workplace as a result of the coronavirus-related issues. Um, If you want copies of these, I'm going to give you the links for them. Uh, I'm also very happy to send copies of them to you by email if you reach out and email to me. Um, I'm happy to give them to you, but uh, I'm going to give you the links if you want to not reach out to me and uh, look these up yourself. Here they are, and I'm going to give you five seconds or so to grab a pen, grab a pencil, and write them down, or you can certainly go back and rewind this podcast episode. Um, So the two guidance documents from the United States Department of Labor, the first under the FLSA you can find under www.dol.gov slash agencies slash WHD slash FLSA slash pandemic. For the FMLA guidance document, very similar to that one, except you're going to substitute FLSA out and put FMLA in. So that document can be found at www.dol.gov slash agencies slash WHD slash FMLA slash pandemic. OSHA has also um, jumped into the ring here. Uh, it has created a web page to talk about safety and workplace issues that might involve OSHA and surrounding the coronavirus in particular. The web page creates um, and gives you a, a great uh, one-stop shopping for information on coronavirus, 
uh, on OSHA's perspectives, as well as links to various key OSHA standards and other guidance documents. You can find this at www.osha.gov slash SLTC slash COVID-19. That number again is www.osha.gov slash SLTC slash COVID-19. And then finally, the EEOC uh, has issued just now a uh, news alert on the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Rehabilitation Act considerations when it comes to coronavirus. And uh, on that, or in that news alert, refers the public to guidance that it had published uh, some time ago on dealing with pandemics under the ADA. And as we know, uh, the coronavirus has been declared uh, a pandemic. You can find that document, which is uh, really interesting because it was, again, issued some time ago when dealing with the flu. Uh, it was not specifically directed, obviously, to the coronavirus, which hadn't existed at that time, but it does still apply uh, to the many scenarios that you might be thinking about or might be happening at your workplace. You could find this EEOC document at www.eeoc.gov slash facts slash pandemic underscore flu dot html that again is www.eeoc.gov slash facts slash pandemic underscore flu dot html we are clearly uh, in a bit of a crazy period of time uh, I hope everybody is um, doing the best they can as well. I hope everybody, uh, all of you listening, all of your coworkers, your families, uh, continue to stay healthy and uh, continue to do what you can to um, have this situation end sooner rather than later. Again, this is part one of my two-part series this week on coronavirus issues. Significant developments just coming down uh, when it comes to legislation and government agency action and guidance on the coronavirus and related issues. In part two later this week, my podcast episode will rebroadcast my firm's coronavirus in the workplace webinar that we put on this past Friday, March 13th, 2020, for those of you who missed it. And I will certainly use that part two as an opportunity to update you all on any developments that come down this week after today's episode. So as always, I want to thank all of you so much for listening, for all of the feedback that I do get from many of you. Continue to send me questions, comments, uh, any feedback you have about the podcast. But until the next time, thank you again for listening, and I hope all of your labor is productive.